The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. And Snow White's godless stepmother was also invited to the feast. After putting on her beautiful clothes, she stepped before her mirror and said, Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who in this land is fairest of all? The mirror answered, You, my queen, are fair, it is true, but the young queen is a thousand times fairer than you. The wicked woman uttered a curse, and she became so frightened that she did not know what to do. At first, she did not want to go to the wedding, but she found no peace. She had to go and see the young queen. When she arrived, she recognized Snow White and, terrorized, she could only stand there without moving. Then they put a pair of iron shoes into burning coals. The shoes were brought forth with tongs and placed before her. She was forced to step into the red-hot shoes and dance until she fell down dead. She fell down dead. The end. There we go. The godless stepmother in red-hot shoes dancing a torture dance at Snow White's wedding and falling down dead. Mazel tov, everyone. That's not the Disney version, of course. It's a version much older than that. The Disney version cleaned it up. And in fact, even the version I just read is a cleaned up version in many ways. It's from the Brothers Grimm, those 19th century collectors of Germanic folktales. They were not out there trying to be the Disneys of their day. They had a much different project in mind, but even they caved to a bit of pressure. In their original, original version... The wicked stepmother was not a stepmother at all, but Snow White's biological mother. And she was a cannibal, intent on eating Snow White's lungs and liver. Why would you put that between two covers? Well, the Brothers Grimm had their reasons. We'll be exploring their lives and their project, Grimm's Fairy Tales, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. A great show for you today. We dive into Germany, as promised, in an attempt to come to grips with that nation and their literature and their literary legacy. What is Germany? That's a que- a que- That's a key question, not a quee question. A key question for our subjects today. Jacob and William Grimm. I'll use the English if. Englishified ver oh boy, we are off to a great start. <laughs> I'll use the Englishified versions of their first names. Jacob and William. What is Germany? Because we've done German authors before, if we define German authors as those writing in the German language, or those whose first language is German. But if they're from Switzerland or Austria or elsewhere, do we look at how the author defines himself or herself? Do we look at the borders as they're drawn today or the borders as they were drawn at the time? The Brothers Grimm were working during the Napoleonic era. Officially, they were ruled by France, but they didn't feel French. In fact, 
They resented it. They wanted a unified Germany, a Germany for Germans. But what makes a German a German? We can ask a similar question about a lot of countries as borders slip and slide, as they change over time, as countries morph and people keep evolving too. Groups of people, they change allegiances and languages and loyalties and customs and self-conceptions. Nations, what are they? Sometimes that matches up neatly with the lines drawn on the map and the label of the country assigned to that territory, and sometimes not. We'll look at what all this meant for the Brothers Grimm in a moment, but first, let me thank you for being here. I'm Jack Wilson, the host of this. Oh, where are we? Do we have another number one? Last time it was Croatia. And indeed we do. We made it to number one in Norway in the category of books, podcasts. According to Apple, that was our peak position. Number one. Thanks to our Norwegian friends for listening. I will have a bit of lutefisk in celebration. I know a lot of Norwegian jokes, actually, and a lot of Swedish jokes. Many of them not fit for polite company. That's what happens when you grow up among the Thorsons and Hansons and Larsons and Olsons in Wisconsin farm country. Willkommen. It was a very common doormat sign. Here's a joke for you. Norwegian joke, apparently. <laughs> Overheard at the Olympics. The man says, are you a pole vaulter? And the man says, no, I'm a Swede, and my name's not Walter. Maybe it was that sensibility deeply rooted in my spiritual outlook that sent the History of Literature podcast to the top of the charts in Norway. Or maybe they're just good fans of good books and I was the beneficiary. In any case, we will add them to our list of countries to thank for making us number one in the books podcasting category, Croatia and Norway. We're two for two. We're filling in the spots on the globe. Speaking of which... Of spinning the globe, we have a little preview for you today. We are traveling to China, and not ancient China, but a much more recent China, to the author Lu Xinwu, a contemporary author who became prominent in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution as a practitioner of, and one of the originators of, what is called scar literature, or literature that treats trauma or damage, and in particular, the damage brought about Psychic damage brought about by the Cultural Revolution, that horrendous period in Chinese history. China, with its traditions of reverence for teachers, turning on them, hounding them, persecuting them. There was a lot of horror that went on during the Cultural Revolution, and a lot of economic and political turmoil as well. And the writers who came along afterwards in that period after the Cultural Revolution and before Tiananmen Square, writers were writing about it in their fashion. And then this novel, called The Wedding Party, which came out in 1982, is a kind of humorous family saga, all of it taking place as a family tries to pull off a wedding against the backdrop of their human history and that particular moment in time. It's been a popular book in China ever since. It's now been translated into English for the first time by Jeremy Tiang, who will be our guest in an episode next week. He joins us today 
for a preview. We will have that and then the Brothers Grimm after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're joined now by Jeremy Chang, who has translated a classic contemporary novel by Lu Xinwu, a classic contemporary in China, who wrote The Wedding Party. Jeremy Chang, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. So we're going to have our full interview in a little bit here in an upcoming episode, but I did want to ask you a question that I found fascinating Coming out of a review of the book, The Wedding Party, it says the novel, quote, asserts itself as a deeply personal introspection into the state of human relationships and what it means to be Chinese in an era of rapid modernization, end quote. And that's a, a reference to the, the time and place of the novel, which takes place in the mid-80s after the Cultural Revolution and as China was undergoing some great changes. But I'm wondering... What did you see in the novel, or what can we say about this tension between old and new and, and traditional and modern, and, and in particular, what it means for a Chinese individual to feel pulled in these two directions? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and of course, there are many, many warring forces in play in the novel. Mm -hmm. But one of them is this drive towards modernization versus other characters who are clinging on to tradition. At the very opening of the novel, you have the concept of the wedding itself being pulled into question because is this happening on an auspicious day or should these superstitions be left in the past anyway? Oh, right. So you have some characters who are very engaged in cultural production. You have an aspiring literary translator. You have a very influential literary editor um, of a poetry journal. And you have a successful poet and an aspiring poet. And all of them in different ways are saying what, what is the future of, of culture in China? Where do we want to take this? Should we be looking to the West? Should we be translating more work? Or should we be looking to our own literary and cultural traditions? Mm. What happens after the Cultural Revolution? Um, how do we get past this? Do we look forward or do we look back? And I'm sure these were big questions that were looming over the country at, a at the time. Yeah. After such a great shared event as the Cultural Revolution that everyone was trying to pass to, to navigate the trauma they'd been through, 
to try and salvage what good they could. Where do we go next? I think that was on everyone's mind. And did you feel as if you get from the characters that they were excited about this, anxious about this, or some mix, or were some people feeling one way and others were feeling another? Yeah, I, I think the great thing about having so many characters in the book is that Liu Sun Wu was able to showcase the full range of emotions mm. um, across society. Um, so yes, some people were tremendously excited about what they saw as the potential for great change. Others were fearful of losing what little cultural and social position they had already managed to hold on to. And there's a lot of uncertainty because no one knows what's going to happen next, but there is a sense that they're on the brink of something. And is it going to be a great opening up and flourishing? Or is it going to be another cultural revolution? Mm, right. Oh, it's a fascinating moment in Chinese history and in world history, really. And it's a fascinating book. I can't wait to have you back and talk about the full novel. Jeremy Chiang, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Looking forward to it. Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Rumpelstiltskin, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, Cinderella. The stories are as commonly known to us as Greek myths or the stories in the Bible, and perhaps more so. They were gathered and published by two brothers in Germany working 200 years ago. The Grimm brothers were born in the 1780s. Two siblings among six surviving children, the second and third born, and born about a year apart. They grew up in Steinau, which is on the road from Frankfurt to Fulda. When they were about 10 and 11, their father died, casting the family into poverty. For a while, they lived under the care and tutelage of their grandfather, but he also died a couple of years later. At this point, they were sent away to school, which an aunt paid for. Although the two were very different in personality, circumstances made them close. They knew they were outsiders at this school of theirs, not as wealthy as the other children, but they worked hard, and each Grimm brother finished at the top of his class. After high school, they went to university, and once again, their hard work and intelligence had to overcome the disadvantages of their low social status and their poverty. They were hungry much of the time, Perhaps their discontent and their treatment at the hands of those around them was what made them receptive to the ideas of one of their professors who wanted to see a unified Germany and who introduced them to the works of a poet named Johann Herder. Herder was another German. Well, that's a question, isn't it? Was he German? He was born in what we would now consider Poland and what was then considered the Kingdom of Prussia. The definition of Germany and Germans was somewhat up for grabs at the time. Herder was a generation or two ahead of the Grimms, born about 40 years before them. Like them, he grew up poor but showed academic and intellectual talent, and he went to university and studied with Immanuel Kant, and he became friends with Goethe. Goethe was influenced by Herder, actually. Herder's literary criticism inspired Goethe to do something new, which led to what we now know as the Sturm und Drang movement. Herder looked to the past and argued that the songs and stories and language and poetry of the people in their natural form 
was the best. Commoners. We see this argument over and over in different nations at different times. What's better? Civilization, sophistication, and refinement? High aesthetics? High art? Or the direct, earthy, bubbling up from the people? Natural art, oral stories, myths, the stuff people described and believed before they knew enough to treat art at a distance and with a high polish. In Germany, this became folk poetry versus art poetry. Volk versus Kunst. Folks versus art. Remember that this is the age of romanticism in the English-speaking world. It's Robert Burns and Wordsworth and Coleridge's lyrical ballads. In Germany, it's Goethe and Herder and a few others. And what they were resisting was the influence, the political and cultural influence of France. Spew out the ugly slime of the Seine, Herder wrote. Speak German, oh you German. Poetry was best before it became civilized, he said. The German language was not something to be embarrassed about or to shun but to embrace. There's a heritage here, a cultural heritage. This is who you truly are, and it's better. It's a powerful message, so powerful and distinct. We've given these movements a different term. It's not just romanticism, but romantic nationalism, and it was sweeping across Europe. At the same time, other currents were sweeping across Europe, the French Revolution, which many of these romantics embraced, and then the Napoleonic Empire, which they did not. Which brings us to the Brothers Grimm. This is the world they inherited, the one at play when they came of age in college. The German language and German art and the Germanic people, true, good, real. Refinement, French over-refinement, empire, elaboration, sophistication, less good. Too much pretension, too much for the upper crust. Not enough there for the real people, folks in their kitchens or sitting by the fireplace. What language did those folks speak? How was their cultural inheritance embedded in those words and syllables coming out of their mouths and the stories that they passed along to one another? The Grimms were devoted to the concept, which adapted itself easily to a devotion to the project. And the project was to collect these stories that these people were telling to one another, the real, the genuine, the stuff that lived with the land almost and definitely lived with the people, the real people, not some fop at a university who wrote pristine verses or someone in a court somewhere who was writing for a king or an emperor in some faraway country. It's important for understanding this goal and this context because we can see what the Grimm's fairy tales were not intended to be. What was Disney trying to do with these stories? Sell family movies, entertain, delight, maybe a bit of moral instruction. That wasn't the goal of the fairy tales, not at first, anyway. The Grimm brothers set out to collect the stories that people were telling to one another and had told to one another in years past, centuries past. And so they gathered them up and published them with commentary about where they had come from, what they showed, how they represented the people of Germany. What were the features of these stories, and what did they say about the people who told them? The Brothers Grimm were not trying to return to the past. They didn't revere the past. 
They were trying to understand the people and to let people know this is who you are. Or maybe I should say to let their fellow Germans know this is who we are. This is our heritage. This is what we come from. Our stock, our people, us. Now, when they decided upon this project, they worked quickly and got lots of stories. And by a fluke, we have an original set of the stories, ones that got set aside by the sponsor of the project, who apparently forgot them or left them behind in a church for some reason. And so we can see exactly how much editing the Grimm brothers did. In fact, they edited quite a bit to smooth out the stories, make them more readable, make them read consistently as a whole. There's a lot of polishing going on for a collection that's supposed to represent the unpolished stories told by commoners in their kitchens. And in fact, a lot of the stories weren't told to the Grimm's by commoners, but by friends they knew from college or other university-educated people. Some of their sources were the elites, but I don't want to undermine their project too much. There was still a lot of roughness to the edges here, at least in the first volume that they published, and overall, I think the mission to gather these stories was successful. These are stories from the people, for the most part, and even if it came from someone elite, maybe it's a story that was told by a nanny, and the nanny had come from the peasant world. And some degree of editing seems only natural. What's a little harder to pin down is exactly how violent or barbaric the stories were, how French or unFrenchified they were, or how Christian or unChristian they were, because the Grimms changed these details for the first collection and also changed them over time. The book was a huge success, and people started telling these stories to their children. Why not? The book is basically called that, Stories for Children. And parents said, My God, a cannibalistic mother? Can we make her not quite such a cannibal? <laughs> maybe maybe a, maybe a stepmother instead of a regular mother, a biological mother. And Prince seems like a French concept. Why don't we say King's son? Can we make this... Why a wise woman instead of a fairy? Fairies are more of a French thing than a German thing. And do we have to describe Rapunzel getting pregnant? That caused an awkward question from my little one. Isn't that a little racy for a children's tale? And the Grimm's modified all these things and much more as the editions continue to roll out. And even so, the stories are still a little shocking. Violent, bloody, mean, twisted harsh, and cruel. We have come a long way. We complain now at the violence or the sadism or the shock of the Disney movies from the 30s and 40s, and those were already toned down from the Grimm brothers. And the Grimm brothers were already toning down the stories that they had heard. Let me give you an example. Here's one that didn't make the cut in a later volume, but it was included at first. And then the brothers Grimm took it out along with some others that they removed. Even as they expanded their volume in subsequent volumes, it rose to as many as 200, over 200 stories. Even as they added stories to make the book longer, they had to take a few out. And partially this was due to success. At first they were aiming their book more at scholars, but as the general public, which was also in the process of becoming more educated, 
higher literacy rate. And as the general public started reading these stories and reading them to their children, they demanded or pressured the Brothers Grimm to make the stories longer rather than the quick abbreviated versions that the Grimm brothers had sometimes heard at first. And William Wilhelm in particular couldn't resist turning the stories into more of an art than the common folk stories as they were being handed to him. Ironically, one might say, the stories of the people were too strong for public consumption. Somewhere there's a lesson in there about giving the people what they want and what they deserve and what you, the publishers or editors or gatekeepers, think that they can handle. Look how natural and earthy and wonderful these stories are. This is our character. Oh, except for this one, and maybe that one, and this one over there. Gulp. Those are kind of monstrous. Maybe that's not who we are? Dot, 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 question mark. Do you think I'm exaggerating? Well, here's the one that didn't make the cut. It comes in two parts, and it's called How Some Children Played at Slaughtering. This was in the first volume of the Grimm's Fairy Tales, not in subsequent volumes. How Some Children Played at Slaughtering. One, in a city named Franeker, located in West Friesland, some young boys and girls between the ages of five and six happened to be playing with one another. They chose one boy to play a butcher, another boy was to be a cook, and a third boy was to be a pig. Then they chose one girl to be a cook and another girl her assistant. The assistant was to catch the blood of the pig in a little bowl so they could make sausages. As agreed, the butcher now fell upon the little boy playing the pig, threw him to the ground, and slit his throat open with a knife while the assistant cook caught the blood in her little bowl. A councilman was walking nearby and saw this wretched act. He immediately took the child who was playing the butcher with him and led him into the house of the mayor, who instantly summoned the entire town council. They debated about this incident and did not know what they should do to the boy, for they realized it had all been part of a children's game. One of the councilmen, an old wise man, advised the chief judge to take a beautiful red apple in one hand and a gold coin in the other. Then he was to call the boy and stretch out his hands to him. If the boy took the apple he was to be set free. If he took the gold coin, he was to be killed. The judge took the wise man's advice, and the boy grabbed the apple with a laugh. Thus he was set free without any punishment. Hmm, that's part one. Brutal, right? Part two, even worse. Here we go. This is from the story How Some Children Played at Slaughtering. Part two. There once was a father who slaughtered a pig, and his children saw that. In the afternoon, when they began playing, one child said to the other, You be the little pig, and I'll be the butcher. He then took a shiny knife and slit his little brother's throat. Their mother was upstairs in a room bathing another child, and when she heard the cries of her son, she immediately ran downstairs. Upon seeing what had happened, she took the knife out of her son's throat and was so enraged that she stabbed the heart of the other boy who had been playing the butcher. Then she quickly ran back to the room to tend to her child in the bathtub, but while she was gone, he had drowned in the tub. Now the woman became so frightened and desperate that she did not allow the neighbors to comfort her and finally hanged herself. 
When her husband came back from the fields and saw everything, he became so despondent that he died soon after from heartbreak. The end. Not exactly happily ever after. Clearly, the folk, the volk, the people were a lot earthier and more violent and more directly matter-of-fact about death and violence. Some of this is terrifying. Terrifying not just the story, but the idea of people telling this story to one another. The idea of them chuckling at this, shaking their heads. It makes them seem like people I'm not sure I would recognize today. On the other hand trying to be as empathetic as possible and work my way into the mindset without the sneaking suspicion that we're seeing some pathways to Nazis here. And the Nazis did draw upon the work of the Brothers Grimm, for sure. Germans being German, it doesn't have a great legacy. But if we are to accept that these common people and their stories have some good as well as some bad, and if we're to view them in the best possible light, we can maybe say that it was a violent and dangerous time, and coming out of the Middle Ages, the medieval period had been even more violent and dangerous. This is still maybe some, some legacies from that, some shadows of that, and there were a lot of children who died young in this era, and a lot of mothers who died in childbirth. For example, life expectancy was much shorter. Death was all around you from the moment you were born. It hardens you. This story might have come, might have uh, gone through some, some stretches where the plague was running rampant. How do you deal with that? How do you cope? And you harden your heart. Maybe stories like this were part of a protective shield. Because you need to move forward. You don't have a lot of free time. How do you cope when you don't have room in your day to heal psychologically? And who can heal psychologically from the kind of death we're talking about here? Children, mothers, and childbirth. My grandmother used to talk about this all the time, about not having a lot of free time. She was Swiss and living in Wisconsin after she emigrated when she was in her 20s. And she and her husband ran a cheese factory there, and she would talk about how busy they had been morning until night, until they'd go to bed exhausted. She talked about raising her kids, and she'd say, I was a cold fish. She regretted that she hadn't been more loving to her daughters, more affectionate, especially after her husband died, and she was left to take care of them and the farmland and the factory until that all became too much. But then she got a job at a hardware store and worked before my grandfather died, when they were running the factory, she would wake up and every day and start cooking, baking loaves of bread for the hired men and preparing a lunch for them and a cake or a pie every day. That's how she would put it. Big meals, morning, noon, and night, in addition to helping out with the factory work herself, with those powerful arms of hers, and still also raising the girls. She would say, the one thing I did, I read to them every night. That was the one thing she was proud of in looking back at her parenting, that she always made time to read them books. And she and her husband, who spoke German and French when they were in Switzerland, came to America and spoke English to one another, so their girls would grow up learning and understanding English better. There's a lot of German in my grandmother. She was pretty tough, kind underneath, 
very loving. She liked to tickle her grandchildren, but her arms and hands were so strong it felt like she could crack a rib. She liked to make cookies for us. She was tough. No nonsense. I don't remember her laughing at a story like children playing at a slaughter, but I wouldn't put it past her either. Once, we were watching the love boat with her as she babysat on a Saturday night, which was amazing since my parents didn't let us watch that show. We were too little, but we got to stay up a little later and watch a little more TV and a little racier TV when Grandma was in charge. Just like my sister asked to eat a bowl of nothing but Cool Whip and my grandma cheerfully served it up. Not something my mom would have done in a million years, although my mom would do it now for my kids, which I would veto if I'm there, but if I'm not around, grandmas have privileges. Okay, so we are watching Love Boat, my sister and me. My grandma's behind us on the sofa, knitting. We're not even sure that she's watching. And there's a chase scene, and a bad guy is getting away. They're running after him. And my sister and I are on the living room floor, thrilling to the chase, while my grandmother is behind us, knitting quietly. And suddenly, they catch the man, and my grandmother, in her heavy Swiss-German accent, yells out, Hit him! Hit him! Knock his block off! Knock his block off. On a timeline, you might have the Brothers Grimm at the start of it, and me, and me and you at the end of it, and right square in the middle, his grandma rose. It's about a hundred years ago. Things were harder. Animals were slaughtered. Children died. Parents died young. There was disease and life happening all over. One night, there was a knock on the door. A neighbor, a farmer who wanted my grandmother to come to his house because his wife was going into labor. He himself had to sleep because he had to milk cows the next day. It had to be done. There was no way around it. My grandmother was a young woman. She had no children. She had no idea what to do. But if she didn't go, the woman who was delivering the baby would be alone. No hospital, no doctor, just her in the bed in agony with a baby on the way. So my grandmother went and figured it out with all the shock and all the humanity that comes with it. Her in a room with a near stranger woman to woman, here to help, and what can you do? Life happens, and life is hard. This was their era. And when it came to the stories they told to one another, they were also more direct and less puritanical, Victorian, about sex and love and animal carnage and bodily functions and human cruelty than we are today. In pulling from the medieval, you get the medieval. It seems you get blocks and they get knocked off. So, sex, premarital sex, figures into the early versions of Rapunzel and the Frog King. Oh, and the Frog King, you know that story where the princess uh, kisses the frog and breaks the spell? Nope. In the original version, she hurls the creature against the wall. Less smooch. More splat. Grim brothers, indeed. In Cinderella, the wicked stepsisters cut off their toes and heels as they try to fit their feet into the slipper. 
A disobedient girl in one story is turned into a block of wood and tossed into the fire. In another story, a woman chops off her stepson's head, chops him up, and serves him in a stew to her husband, who gobbles it up and asks for more. Nighty-night, kids. Sweet dreams. There's ugly anti-Semitism in these early stories, which the Nazis noticed. And there's incest. And as we mentioned, the stepmothers were originally biological. Now, look, the Grimm brother, the Brothers Grimm in these stories have been criticized for demonizing step-parents and stepmothers in particular and step-siblings. And there is a horrible pattern here, to be sure. It's not fair to step-parents that they show up wicked in these stories. So it's pretty fascinating to read that this was introduced by the Grimm's themselves in many of the cases because of the fear that having this stuff be done by biological parents would be too shocking and scary. A biological mother who would kill or harm or eat her children? Ew, what does that do to the kids? But, clearly, they didn't really think about how terrifying it would be if you happened to have a step-parent, or what it would do for an entire generation, a whole civilization, really, who have these stories drummed into them when they're young. Now, maybe there's some chicken and egg going on here. Do we demonize step-parents because of the Grimm brothers, or do we have a, a natural fear of step-parents or an aversion to them? Is this all inherent, and the Grimm's were merely reflecting our natural tendencies, the feeling that maybe you don't trust an outsider, a stranger, an interloper, someone who's taking the place of your beloved mother. Maybe this is so deeply rooted that we can't blame the Brothers Grimm for tapping into it. Well, I think we can say that at the very least, they reinforced it, whether they intended to do this or not. And the, the other criticisms that we see of the Brothers Grimm and their fairy tales are valid too. And we kind of can use the same template for our criticisms. No, I don't think they invented the idea that the ideal for boys will be to be strong and courageous and girls will be beautiful and princess-like. But that doesn't mean we have to have stories for children that only say that or that say that over and over and over. And some stories, like the anti-Semitic ones, are so stomach-churning, I'm fine leaving them out of any books for children altogether and having them available only to scholars— for historical purposes, we don't need to be pushing that stuff into the minds of kids who aren't going to think it unless they're taught to think that way. Germany's 20th century history is the best example of where that can lead. If you want to understand the mindset of people from the past, if an adult wants to understand the mindset, fine, have at it. But if we're talking about some movie that a kid is going to watch 50 times, Let's try to be better than they were in the past. We can be tolerant and still be entertaining, just like we can be funny without being bullies. And we can be honest and open without being toxic. Leave me alone and let me be X, where X is some kind of prejudice is not good enough for me. And rant. We're talking about the Grimm's, not me. And this seems to have been the Grimm's instinct as well, frankly, they didn't revise everything and they didn't go as far as we might, but they seem to have recognized that their scholarly efforts to gather folktales was a different project than the one it was turning into with a wide-scale publishing of stories 
that were becoming popular and that people were actually reading to kids. They weren't just collecting and presenting. They were forming. They had blind spots in what they thought was important to change. Yes, to adding more Christianity. Yes, to taking out sex and some of the violence. Although women are often the bad guys. And it's been suggested that the father figures in the stories by the Brothers Grimm are there because the boys themselves had lost their father and then their grandfather. And so their inclination was to compensate for that, for that whole by finding kindly fathers and putting them into their stories. It's a nice theory, but it doesn't always fit what happened. So I believe we left them in college. They were awfully poor. Here's a tough thing about Germany at that time. The kids from wealthy families got subsidized tuition, and those from poorer families did not, apparently. So the Brothers Grimm, being from a poor family, got little help, and they had to work their way through. Hungry. Five of us are eating Meals for three people, they once said, and we eat once a day. Now and then they took jobs, and they had to drop out, couldn't continue their studies until they earned enough money to get back in, pay the tuition. Finally, they they ended up as librarians for a while, which was perfect. The pay wasn't great, but it gave them time to gather their folktales. When they were in their mid-twenties, they started gathering them in earnest, and finally they published the first volume of 86 of these stories. Children's and Household Tales was the title. Stories plus commentary, and it was a wild success eventually. At first, the sales were slow. A second volume with 70 more stories came out a few years later, and then they started publishing different editions, some with all the stories, and dropping a few and adding some new ones, eventually getting to more than 200, some with just 50 chosen specifically for children, some with illustrations, some with legends added, English translations, other translations as well. Then the brothers started working on a collection of Irish folktales and Danish folktales and Norse mythology. They also devoted time to their linguistic pursuits, including the writing of a dictionary, a German dictionary, which they didn't finish. They died before they could finish. They also wrote philological essays. And there's even a tenet in linguistics called Grimm's Law that comes from a discovery that Jacob made, which is that Indo-European words were changing pronunciation according to a kind of pattern. Apparently, the sounds of certain consonants were changing over time in predictable ways or according to a scheme. So that seem, seemingly unrelated words could actually be traced back to a common language that had seemed to scholars at the time to be an impossible bridge to cross. Jacob figured it out. Pretty smart thing to come across. And the named theory is the tribute, Grimm's Law. But it's the Grimm's fairy tales or the Brothers Grimm that has been their true legacy. There's Something awe-inspiring about their devotion to German folk culture. And also something a little terrifying. It's not their fault to dig deep and see what the people were thinking and what they were like. And to find out that, in some ways, they were pretty brutal. Heads being lopped off, and kids being tossed into the oven, and so on. They developed a kind of spidey sense of what was and wasn't German. 
a jerdar, we might say, Deutschdar, that tips their hand a bit. For example, they ruled out stories that they deemed too French or too Italian. They weren't the first ones to gather folk tales. There had been versions of this in, in French and in Italian, and a lot of these stories overlapped, as you might expect. How do they find the one that's German, or how, which ones do they cross off altogether? For example, the story of Little Red Riding Hood, which was present in a lot of countries. Well, the Brothers Grimm welcomed that one aboard. Aha, you can imagine them thinking, this is a classic German story, a good representative of German tropes and fears and desires and storytelling instincts. If you remember that story, a little girl goes... Traipsing through the woods, the woods in German stories, the forest. It's like snow and ice to an Eskimo. A little girl goes traipsing through the woods to see her grandmother. The dark, potentially terrifying woods. Stay on the path, mother says. The little girl is disobedient. That's another common trope in these stories, sometimes added by the Grimm brothers, Brothers Grimm, sometimes not. The wolf arrives first. <laughs> Once Little Red Riding Hood strays from the path, the wolf arrives, talks to her, distracts her, and then heads off to the grandmother's house and eats the grandmother whole. You know what happens next. Little Red Riding Hood shows up with the wolf in disguise. What a deep voice you have, Grandma. What big eyes. The better to greet you with, the better to, and so on. Until finally, what a big mouth you have, the better to eat you with, and the girl is eaten too. And then in the Grimm's version, a hunter comes. It's a woodcutter in the French version. In the Grimm version, it's a hunter. Comes and chops open the wolf with an axe, and for some reason, this doesn't kill the wolf. The grandmother and Little Red Riding Hood are saved, but the wolf, who's chopped open, is somehow still alive, still merely sleeping, so they fill the wolf with stones. So when he goes to drink out of a well, he topples in and drowns. It's a master bit of storytelling with much more suspense than many children's stories have. The part where Little Red Riding Hood thinks she is talking to her grandmother. It all defies plausibility, the wolf eating the grandmother whole is pretty implausible, first of all. And then thinking that the wolf having the the disguise be so good that Little Red Riding Hood does it figure it out is pretty implausible. That's number two. And so is a talking wolf, I guess, for that matter. You have to suspend quite a bit of disbelief for this. But if you set all that aside, that exchange between that little girl and that wolf, what big eyes you have, Grandma. The better to see you with, my dear. What big hands you have, Grandma. The better to embrace you with. It's an easy way to scare and delight a child at bedtime for sure. With the big payoff, the better to eat you with. You know it's coming. It's like the golden arm story. You know that one, right? Where's my golden arm? It's still scary, but it's also kind of fun. When you're having this much fun with a story and storytelling, you don't need to dig too deep with it. It has centuries of storytelling behind it. 
polishing and refining the details. And you can see little elements being tacked on, adding, as the Grimm brothers did in their version, a part at the beginning where Little Red Riding Hood is told by her mother not to stray from the path. But she does. This is all about the disobedience of a child. No problem with the mother sending the little girl through the woods where wolves large enough to eat human beings live. They can eat human beings whole. That's how big they are. And they have the cunning and guile of serial killers and the power of speech. And they're champions of disguise. No problem with the mother sending the little girl. That's not the lesson to learn. That a mother maybe should not send a little girl out there to walk through woods like that. Saying just that the child needs to stay on the path as if that's truly going to protect her and save her. I guess the idea is that hunters will save the day if you stay on the path. Even so, you get my point. There's a, a bit added here. It's not to condemn the mothering, but to make kids stay in line. And if we're talking about stories being told to kids at bedtime, parents like to have that added to the mix. See, here's what will happen to you. Young Johnny or Susie, the big bad wolf might get you if you don't obey. Santa's keeping track, too, by the way. Stay off his naughty list. Parents are so desperate sometimes. But hey, guess what? It's because we're scared. There aren't wolves out there, but there's danger and, and peril everywhere. Moral dilemmas to face. It's easier if young children will just do what we say and learn from our mistakes and just listen to us. Though sometimes kids have to make a few of their own mistakes, too. So where were we going with this? The Brothers Grimm and their selection. Here's a story that was clearly French and Italian, and they said, you know what? We will happily take it. It checks our boxes for a true German story, and it's told by Germans to other Germans in German and has been for a long time. We won't cross it off our list, even though versions of it have already appeared in print in other languages. A wolf in the woods... Chopping him with an axe, drowning, death, swallowing grandma whole. Sounds German to us, said the Brothers Grimm. In the story of Cinderella, a story that's been around the world in some version, it goes way back. In Europe alone, it was in print in Italy and France, everywhere. The Brothers Grimm tell the version with the stepsisters cutting off their toes to fit the slipper. And after the wedding with Cinderella, Walking down the aisle, doves fly off her shoulder and attack the eyes of the stepsisters, blinding them. Sounds German to us, said the Brothers Grimm. And not just German, but the German people, the Volk, not the academics, the people in their kitchens. It raises an interesting question. What stories do we, the people, like? What do we tell each other? And this is, well, I'm going to call it a dilemma for us today if we're trying to see ourselves and who we are. I'm not sure we have folk stories anymore. We have the folk stories that have been handed to us by the Brothers Grimm and others. We have the stories we read in books or watch on television. And you could say that the popular stories are those that we've chosen, that through the marketplace of ideas, we've decided that we like superhero stories and Stories with happy endings and stories with dogs or whatever else our entertainment overlords 
have decided test well or play well or will sell. Our Kunst, poetry and prose, the artistic stuff is a little easier to see. That's the theater we attend off-Broadway or in little out-of-the-way places. The stuff that gets great reviews, even if it's not quite potboiler material, not big musical stuff. The stuff that's good for us, the stuff we value, the stuff that wins prizes, or the poems that are written in little journals, or the novels that are written by prize winners from Brooklyn. But what bubbles up from the people? If you were one of the Brothers Grimm and you were looking for true stories, the ones that come from the people, looking for the heart and soul of a nation, if you were doing that project today, at least in America, what you'd find is probably not anything that comes from the people. It comes from above, handed down by tastemakers at corporations. Artists are involved, sure, directors, producers, comedians, actors, writers, competent storytellers. But there's no real mystery there. There's nothing mysterious about the dark pool of humanity where it bubbles up from. It's people who are being paid salaries and who are being provided with the means to write them for hire. It might be the stories that they think we want more than the stories that we do want. And there's no secret treasure chest of stories being handed around at campfires or in kitchens or on the edge of a child's bed. The stories we have available today show up on our screens. If we try to find our national character in narrative, we'll look for the stories that we like, not the stories that we tell. If you've ever been abroad, especially if you've visited a country where travelers and tourists and visitors are not common, a country where travel is difficult and there's a need for an oasis, or for help from fellow travelers. You've probably seen this in action. The national character becomes prominent. An American finds an American in Morocco, or Madagascar, or Mozambique, or Malta, and the two will find that they have much in common. We're not like these other people here, are we? We might like them, we might admire them, we might be full of love for them. But you and I, with our shared past and shared culture, our shared language, our shared references, we have something in common that we don't share with them necessarily. At home, you and I might be miles apart generationally, culturally, geographically, ethnically, but there is something common about us that we share. The Brothers Grimm would say in their day that it was language and it was folktales. Something Germanic. Well, what do we have instead of folktales. Saturday Night Live characters and phrases, historical events that we've gone through, national tragedies, elections, Super Bowls, school curricula. What do we have for stories? When I was first traveling, it was television shows like Cheers and those Saturday Night Live sketches maybe some big movies that everyone had seen, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. What will it be for my kids? Marvel movies? 
a Kendrick Lamar album, memes that everyone looks at on the same day. And if we pit all that against art, the way the Romantic Nationalists pitted high art against the art of the people, will we see the same dynamic? You might say, hey, what's the big deal? A kid in Germany heard a story about Cinderella or Little Red Riding Hood. A kid today watches a story about Woody and Buzz. What does it matter if the story comes from the people organically? The generations of people honing their stories and passing them along. Or what if it comes from Pixar? What does it matter if you grow your own grapes or buy your wine in a supermarket? What does it matter if you're hearing the story from your mother, who heard it from her mother, who heard it from her mother, and so on? All of them recalling and adding and changing and making it part of who they are and who you are and who you come from. Maybe you miss nothing. And now with kids of your own, you didn't hear a story from your parents because you watched your stories on a screen. And you have no stories that need to be told either. The screen that talked to you will do just fine talking to your kids. We'll all have the same stories if we happen to subscribe to the same services and select the same forms of entertainment. Is that a nation united? I suppose it is. But is it united enough? Okay, there we go. My thanks to the Brothers Grimm and to Jeremy Chiang for our sneak preview. We'll have our full conversation with Jeremy in our next episode. Stick around for that one. You won't want to miss it. And our thanks to Norway for making us the number one books podcast in that country. Thank you very much for listening, all my Norwegian friends, friends in literature all around the world. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.